The guys are coming uh, forward now. They've got Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please uh, just give them the nod, raise your hand, and they'll find you and give you a Bible that you can use. And that's yours to keep. That's our gift to you. We want to make sure that everybody's got a copy of God's Word to have for their very own. And uh, we'll be looking today at the book of Colossians. If you've got one of those Bibles that the gentleman handed out, that's page 653, book of Colossians. If you don't have one of the Bibles the guys handed out, you're on your own. You can actually you can go to Philippians, turn right. It's just after that, before 1 Thessalonians. You know... Uh, I mentioned how in all the years of taking teenagers on trips and going on trips myself and years in youth ministry, I'm still amazed at how God uh, takes you right where you're at and uh, puts you in a place, puts you through things, uh, exposes you to sections of his word that teach you what, what you need to learn or be reminded of right at that point and uh, how he causes events and things to concur and happen and uh, even things as small as the songs that were selected this morning and uh, how how closely related they are obviously they're all all related to hopefully what we're what we're hearing each morning from the pulpit each Sunday morning but uh, in particular in the theme of God's holiness God's uh, supremacy the supremacy of Christ and that's what we're going to look at in Colossians chapter 1 today and take-home truth for today is that until you allow Jesus Christ, his rightful place on the throne of your life, nothing else will be in its proper place. You know, people are hardwired. I've noticed this. Professionals who study people and behavior say this. People are hardwired to search for meaning, for balance, for fulfillment. And uh, really, people are seeking release from that feeling of meaninglessness, chaos, and discontent that is, is commonplace. It only takes a stroll through the self-help section of your local bookstore or maybe watching a couple minutes on Oprah, not that I recommend it, to uh, see that this is the case. This is what people are chasing after. People are chasing uh, a sense of meaning, a way to find significance, a way to have purpose, a way to find fulfillment. And adults in our culture often find ways to dull the pain and ignore this sense of aimlessness. Uh, they, they fill that void with, with a variety of things. They even find some relief, temporary as it is, in their efforts to create meaning and a sense of purpose that's greater than themselves. I've noticed that the younger people in our culture tend to be more honest about this sense of meaningless. Turn on your radio and listen to uh, the popular music of our day, and uh, you'll, you'll get a sense of that. My neighbor's a Brownstown firefighter, and we were talking yesterday about how his job's going. I was telling him a little bit about our our Bakersfield trip, and uh, he began telling me about uh, something. He was just talking about the long shifts he was working over the last week, and and in particular the day before. He was telling me about an alarming trend that he's seen uh, among teenagers in our area recently even. Uh, You may have seen it in the news yesterday that a teenage boy apparently decided to end his life by walking in in front of a semi on I-75, not far from here. And as horrific as that is, it gets even worse. My neighbor told me that that's the third time a young person has done that in our area this month. This month. 
And I think that, uh, that really we ought not to be surprised that the younger generation uh, who, as they face uh, a world, a reality in which they've been taught, is meaningless, void of real purpose, that everything is simply material in motion, that everything they see around them is the product of cosmic accidents, including them, that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't surprise me that they feel a sense of hopelessness. Some in our culture have rightly identified this vacuum of, of fulfillment that we observe as being connected to values disorientation. They realize that we're just kind of afloat. You know, our, our um, affinity for, our love for this idea of relativism, that, hey, what's right for you is right for you, and what's right for me is right for me, that, that this, maybe this is close to uh, the problem. Maybe this is somehow related. And uh, many have latched on to family values or conservative values in an attempt to find a solution. But we, until we trace the root of our values disorientation all the way back, we'll never be able to successfully recalibrate. We'll never successfully be able to get what's wrong with our thinking, what's wrong with our way of looking at life, corrected if we don't trace it back to its root. Until we get to the heart of our disoriented values, any feeling of satisfaction and purpose that we're able to derive from things that we make up, things that we latch onto, is short-lived and quickly will be revealed as superficial and simply a refined version of previous failures. So how do we find the solution to our disoriented values? I'm glad you asked. Where do, we, where do we find a tool, a standard by which we can accurately calibrate our values? Where would we look for something like that? Our pastor has wisely taught us over the years that there are two possible sources from which we would get our worldview, and, and ultimately that's, that's where we derive our values. He said that we will either consciously adopt them from God's word or we will unconsciously absorb them from the culture around us. So I want to look today with you for a few moments at God's word, specifically at this letter from a man named Paul to a church in a city called Colossae. And in the first chapter, the writer greets the church and tells them how thankful he is for their example of faith in Christ and the love that they have for each other that springs from the hope they have in Christ. And as he's giving thanks to God in these introductory remarks, he naturally arrives at the source for all for which he has to be thankful, Jesus Christ. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So he's giving thanks. He's talking about his thankfulness for their faith and their love. And it naturally leads him to the person that is the source of their faith and their love, Jesus Christ. And from here he begins to tell us about the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the one in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 
This, my brothers and sisters, is where we have to begin if we want to get our values straightened out. We have to begin with Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior who alone is worthy of worship. We're going to take a look really quickly at this passage and look at Jesus' supremacy in three ways. Jesus' supremacy in creation, Jesus' supremacy in redemption, and Jesus' supremacy in his church. First of all, we look at verses 15 and 16, and we see Jesus' supremacy in creation. It says in Colossians 1, verse 15 and 16, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or authorities, all things were created by Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. We see here Jesus is supreme in creation. Jesus Christ here is presented as the creator God. This is one of the truths that we shared with the young people, the the children at our vacation Bible school, that God made us. And specifically, we taught them that Jesus Christ, who you read about in the Bible, is the God who made you. You know, think about what it means that Jesus is the creator of the universe. I mean, Jesus is the creator of the universe, and as such, he is worthy of worship. You think about what uh, the different authors in Scripture have written about God as creator and the implications that it has for us. Think about what the psalmist said when he considered the creation that the creator made. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he stopped and he paused and he considered And he was caused to be in awe and caused to think about his place, which we'll look at in just a second. But think about that. Have you ever done that? Have you ever really stopped to think about all that's out there and ask yourself why God made it? I've got a a, a computer-generated image put up on here for you. This is a, a representation of the known universe. Scientists and artists have gotten together and, and uh, those who map out the universe. And they've tried to say, all right, this is, this is as we look out with telescopes, these are all the things as far out as, as we can see. Um, take a look at the, the picture. The map contains about 100,000 dots. And you think, wow, that's a lot of stars. But those dots aren't stars. The dots represent galaxies and galaxy clusters. So if you keep zooming in, this is a a deep space photographic image that was taken. You keep zooming in, galaxies are thought to be on average about a billion, hundred billion stars each. And thus are depicted, the ones that are depicted here in this picture contains about 10 to the 15th power stars. I mean, that's just a number that's too huge to imagine. And you look at that and you think, that's incredible. I wonder why God made all of that. Human eye will likely never gaze at even a small portion of this massive creation. You know, this picture we have here is computer generated. As we look out, these are these are our lines of sight, basically, and we're kind of filling in what we think that uh, we can see. We can't really see the detail. Why would why would God create all of this when no one else but Him's ever going to see it? 
could ask the same question about things that are in the depths of the oceans on our own planet. Uh, animals, creatures that we may never see. Some, some we, we've seen with new exploration that's happened in recent decades, and we think, boy, look at that crazy-looking thing. It's been down there all this time, and we've never seen it. And many things down there that we likely will never see. Why would God do that? Why would God make that? The answer some people have given is, well, you know, to create a universe that would sustain life on our planet, all these things have to be in just the right place. And you know that that well may be, and I, I believe God has part of the beauty of God's creation is you look around and you see the precision with which he made it and the way that everything is intricately designed. So there may well be something to that. But I think the answer is much simpler than that. I think the answer, the answer is simply he made it because it pleased him. Like everything else that God made, he made it for himself. Like you and I that God made, he made for himself. Jesus Christ is supreme as creator. He made everything that is, and he made it for himself, the text tell us. tells us in verse 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers, all things were created by him. And what is the next phrase? For him. He made it all, and he made it for himself. And I think that uh, we reveal when we think about a question like that initially and we start asking ourselves, why would God do that if I can't see it? We reveal the disorientation that I was talking about in our perspective. We think that we're at the center of the universe. I think I operate on a regular basis like it is all about me. The offertory, which uh, I, know, I noticed and I didn't catch it beforehand. It looked like it was missing uh, the first line of the, uh, of the chorus that says that I'm, I'm getting back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. And we forget that. I think it's all about Larry. And just if you could take a peek at my life on a daily basis, you would catch me slipping into that. It's all about Larry. But it's not. It's all about Jesus. We're not the center of the universe. God is. And Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, is the center. It's all about him. And that leads us to the next point. Jesus Christ is the sovereign God. He's the creator God, and he is the sovereign God. If you look at verses 16 and 17, the end of verse 16 says, All things were created by him and for him. In verse 17, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17 there, we see that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's in control of everything. This is, this is a thought that uh, answers all of the questions that arise in our minds when we think about some of the difficult teachings of Scripture. You know, you think about, uh, why would God do this this way? Or why did God make the creation this way? Or uh, just in most of the difficult questions people have asked me about what the Bible teaches and theology and, and, and why God does what he does are answered right here. And in much the same way as why did God create what he created? 
wasn't for me. God didn't call me up and check with me and say, hey, would you do it this way? God is in control. Jesus Christ is the God who is in control. He's the sovereign God. The Bible says here that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Bible goes on to say in Hebrews chapter 1, that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his own Son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus Christ is the creator and ruler of the universe. He alone is worthy of our worship. If we, want to have, if we want to understand what life is really about, if we want to be able to latch on to a sense of purpose and meaning that is bigger than ourselves, there are lots of causes we can go after. But none of them is equal to this, that Jesus Christ is the creator and ruler of the universe. There's a problem to us doing that. The problem is that we, like our forefather Adam, who chose to go his own way instead of worshiping God and in doing so brought sin and death upon the human race, our sin keeps us from bowing down before the Lord Jesus. But the Bible tells us that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things. Not only is Christ preeminent in creation, but Christ is preeminent in redemption. That's the second point. Verse 21 says that we were alienated and were enemies. The Bible says that you and I, in our natural state, are alienated from God, and we are enemies. Think about enemies. What does that mean, to be someone's enemy? I mean, a prominent example for us today, a very sensitive one, and I, in fact, thought about using this as an example and, and questioned whether I should, because it can, it can uh, evoke such strong emotion and, and uh, passion. But think about well-known enemies today, the United States and Al-Qaeda. You know, think, of, think about um, some of the things that incense you that are done uh, in the name of the, the holy war that uh, Islamic religious extremists are waging in our world. And you think about the animosity that you feel toward them. They're an enemy. You consider them an enemy. But look what the Bible says in verse 20 about this, about God, Jesus Christ, doing for his enemies. It says that, and through him he reconciled to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on a cross. Jesus made peace through his blood shed on the cross. We were his enemy. We were far worse in his consideration than Al-Qaeda is to Americans. There, there is much more against us that God has than we have against any other human on this planet. 
And yet this is what Jesus did. Very rarely the Bible says, will anyone die for a righteous man? Though for a good man, some might possibly dare to die. But here's how God demonstrates his love to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is supreme as our creator, but Christ is also supreme as our redeemer. It says in our passage here that now he has reconciled you. And further, that he presents you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. He takes us who are his enemies, us who are worthy of his condemnation, us who are worthy of punishment, And he reconciles us to himself through Christ's death on the cross, through his shed blood, through the sacrifice of himself. He brings us who were enemies, who were far off, close, and makes us part of his family. We ought to be in awe of him because of that, not just because he's our creator, but he's our redeemer. He made us, and as a a human race, when we ran away from him and thumbed our nose at him, he pursues us. And at great cost to himself, reconciles us. Jesus Christ is supreme as our creator. He is supreme as our redeemer. And then thirdly, he is is supreme as the head of his body, the church. Verse 18 says this. It says that he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Not only is he the head of creation, he's the head of the new creation, the church. We, all who have been redeemed, are his body. And this is where our place finally begins to come in focus. We're here for him. We're here to act according to his will, his desires. He's given us a mission. You you take a look at Matthew chapter 28. Read verses 18 through 20, and you'll find that Jesus Christ has given us a mission. He said, as you go, you make disciples and baptize them, teaching them to observe all the things that I have taught you. And he's promised to be with us for this mission. But he's given us a mission. And in this passage here, the writer Paul tells us that he's given us a mission that we are supposed to live for, even if it means suffering. Look at verse 24. He says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I was... In what I was suffered, and what was suffered for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. He says that we are supposed to live for this mission even if it means suffering. He goes on in verse 26, The mystery that has been kept hidden for the ages and generations is now disclosed to the saints. To them he has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We live for the mission he's given us even if it means suffering, and we live for the mission that he's given us as if it's the only thing we have to live for. He says that that this is the mystery he's revealed to us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What keeps me going? What gets me up in the morning? Is it uh, my career? Is it that uh, I've really got these financial goals I want to meet and I've got to hit the ground running today or I won't be able to keep up with my goals and retire at the right age? Or is it that I have the hope of glory because of Christ in me? Because Jesus Christ is supreme as the head of his body, the church, of which you are a part. 
He doesn't just get a couple hours from me uh, during the week if I, if I happen to crack my Bible open and maybe pray here and there or if I show up at a service during the week. My life is supposed to be about him. We live for the mission he's given us as if it's the only thing for which we have to live. And finally, verse 28, we live for the mission he's given us and we're not content to do it alone. Verse 28 says this, We proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Incidentally, this is our church's theme verse. We're not content to do this alone. We are on a mission that God has given us, and we're consumed with it. Is that what you're about? Do you spend all that God has entrusted to you, and I'm not just talking about money, do you spend it all on the mission? Is it, is it really the priority of your life? What do you spend your time and energy on? Are you pursuing the mission more aggressively than you pursue your hobbies, your career, many of the other worthy causes that you may be involved with? There's no more worthy cause than that for which you and I were made. Or are you spinning your wheels trying to find meaning and satisfaction everywhere except for the one place you can truly find it in pursuit of the mission that your maker, your redeemer, in the head of your body, the church, has given to you? The Bible says this. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And I'm afraid that on a regular basis, I catch myself doing this exact same thing. I'm spinning my wheels, trying to find significance in things that can't possibly provide what I'm looking for. And all the while, I'm turning away from the one who has what I'm looking for. God's speaking to you this morning through his word and saying, don't settle for counterfeit causes. Give yourself to the mission for which, for which I made you. How will you answer him? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for all that you've done in the world you've created. You, you made a world and you made it good. And our sin entered the good world you made and corrupted us, corrupted it. And you pursued us, Lord. You and your plan made provision to redeem us. Your Son, the Redeemer, the God who redeems, gave his life on the cross so that we could be reconciled to you. And Lord, you are the head of our body, the church. Lord, forgive us for hijacking the lives that you've given us and for filling with all kinds of things that tickle our fancy for the moment. I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive us for that flippancy with which we use what you've entrusted to us. I pray this, Lord. I pray this for our church. I pray that you would move us, that you enable us to pursue the mission that you've given us with all the vigor and fervency that we have found ourselves pursuing these lesser causes throughout our lives. 
I pray, Lord, that as we do that, you would be pleased to cause your fame to grow through the ministry of Community Baptist Church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.